Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Kasten Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. I'm your host, Marius Smith, Manager of the Kasten Centre. I'm Melissa Kasten, Deputy Director at the Kasten Centre. I'm Patrick Emerton, an Associate at the Kasten Centre. Well, when it rains, it pours. We're back in the hangar for another edition so soon after last one because we wanted to dive into last week's High Court case on Tasmania's anti-protest laws, which was uh, breaking news as we were taping. Um, you can get uh, Melissa's very brief thoughts on that uh, in the podcast behind this one in the feed. Um, before we get going, I will again give a gratuitous plug for our dinner on the 23rd of November. If you Google Kasten Centre Dinner or look on our website, you'll find the details for that. There'll be over 300 people there and we'd love to see you along. Now, this won't be a full episode. We're just going to wade into last week's decision and then get out. So it's more of a case note podcast, this one. <laughs> um, but before we get started, uh, welcome especially to you, Patrick, for your first appearance on the podcast. Who Thanks are for you? having me. <laughs> And Marius, don't we have a language advisory for this one? Yeah, this um, podcast does involve uh, a lot of the use of the C word. That is constitution. That's right. We'll try not to get too weedy. All right, so I want to focus a little bit on the Australian Constitution. So this was a case last week um, where Bob Brown, the former Greens politician, and another woman as well as others had been um, charged under a new anti-protest law in Tasmania and they were charging, they were challenging the law on the grounds that it was unconstitutional. So Australia's constitution, uh, if we're going to have a contest for the world's most boring constitution, would <gasps> be right you. up there. I, I knew the two of you can get upset about that. Uh, but it's a very functional procedural document. It sets out which branch of government does what, how powers are defined by, by state and federal governments, whereas we don't have... A bill of rights. Patrick actually has his head in his hands. Um, and now for the rebuttal. <laughs> he, he, um, so this, but this guy's uh, um, hinged on something called the implied freedom of political communication. Patrick, could you start by telling us uh, what freedoms there are in the Australian Constitution a- well, and challenge any? Um, well, the Australian con- comments. the Australian Constitution isn't a classic liberal constitution. So it doesn't set out a list of freedoms. Mm. It's more of a Republican constitution. So it sets out a set of institutions and capacities. And the most fundamental is that the members of parliament are to be chosen directly by the people. So it doesn't confer a freedom. It confers a power. Uh, the political power, the sovereignty of the nation is vested in the people of the, of the nation. Mm. And from that, it follows that anything any law or any government action which would excessively burden the exercise of that sovereign power, that power of the people to to be at the bedrock of the government in Australia is unconstitutional. And that's what this case was about. So the argument in this case is that the anti-protest law in the way that it makes it harder for people to express their political opinions therefore gets in the way of them choosing their members of parliament and thereby choosing their government. So before we get into the Tasmanian case, so where does this... So this is what we call an implied right. Where, where, well, what's, the, what's the brief history of this? Well, it's not a, it's not a, a right. It's not an implied right. It's, um, so, again, so the Constitution establishes and has established since 1901 that the members of Commonwealth Parliament are to be chosen by the people. And it's been clear since um, the early 1990s when this first started to be litigated in a serious way, that because you can't 
choose your members of parliament without talking about politics, laws which get in the way of talking about politics are unconstitutional. It means that it's really a limitation on government power and not much more than that. Well, yeah, so, so, it, so can, the government can't create laws or take actions that would get in the way of that political activity. It's not really free, a free speech right in the sense no. that people often say in, in general conversation. No, it's not a, it doesn't confer a right on anyone. It, uh, it's a lack of power in the parliament. Mm. So it's an immunity in the technical in sense. sense. Mm. Um, all right, so can you tell us then um, what this Tasmanian law did? So the law was the Workplaces Protection from Protesters Act 2014 and it was a Tasmanian law that contained a whole lot of provisions that stopped people from engaging in protest activities. Um, And protest activities are those activities where people are um, promoting awareness or um, support for a particular opinion or belief about a political issue and the political issue could include environmental issues, cultural, social, economic issues. So that's quite a broad range of opinions that you could be stopped from expressing. Yeah, but but on the other hand, kind of narrow in the fact that it's not anyone um, who's interfering with the business. It's only people who are protesting and interfering with the business. Yeah, you have to be kind of expressing a political opinion, Mm. um, not randomly interrupting. Yeah, so this is a law specifically targeted at protesting. Well, it turns out that that is what it was doing. It was kind of constructed as a law that protected business, but in fact it's a law that, um, I guess, modifies or moderates a person's right to express their political opinion about the things that that business might be doing. I mean, this issue issue of purpose, what's the law for, I mean, was discussed extensively by the court because it's a very important part of applying the legal test for the validity of the law in these circumstances. And there was this back and forth over what the purpose is because Bob Brown and his colleagues were arguing that the purpose of the law is to stop protest. And when you frame it in that way, that makes it look invalid because stopping protest looks like it's a burden on people doing the politics that they need to to choose their members of parliament. Mm. All the members of the court, even the the ones who struck down significant parts of the law, uh, thought it was important to frame the purpose more narrowly, that the purpose was protecting businesses from certain consequences Mm. of protest action. And it was that narrower framing um, which the Tasmanian government persuaded the court of, mm. which was important in finding the law to be valid. And I think that's probably one of the more um, controversial aspects of the decision, I would think. So uh, just, just, uh, d- just to clarify there, when you say <clears throat> defining the law to be valid, you mean so they didn't invalidate the whole law? They invalidated certain, apps, well, certain it, provisions? But even the parts that were struck down by the majority... Um, they weren't struck down because of an improper purpose. So can I just take us back a step? So there's some key sections that people should look at if they're interested to actually get stuck into the the provisions. And that, I think I mentioned section four about defining what protest activities are. So section four defined protest activities. Section six said that a protester must not enter into, um, into or do an act on a business premises. Um, that prevents or hinders or obstructs the carrying on of the business. And so you can see the connection between the political expression and the getting in the way of what the business needs to do. 
And then the other important section um, which comes up in the in the uh, text of the judgment is section eight, which made it an offence to re-enter an area where a person had been directed to leave because of their protest and political expression. Um, and so what happened was that the High Court held that, or at least a majority of the High Court held, that the these provisions that I've discussed um, impermissibly burdened the implied freedom of political communication. And for that reason, those sections become invalid. Um, uh, Justice Gordon held that only Section 8 was invalid and Justice Edelman said the Act was valid in its entirety. So we'll come back then to, to looking into how the judges actually decided those positions. Yeah. So before we do, um, let's just quickly talk about what this particular case was about. So so how did it come about? What were the actual facts? So, um, so Bob Brown and, uh, and one of his colleagues were engaging in protest activity on Tasmanian forest land and sort of a forestry officer types sort of uh, more or less moved them on under these laws and they wouldn't be moved on and then they were charged. Um, and then the charges were subsequently dropped for reasons that kind of go more to the pedantry of police processes than the, the principles of the case. But Patrick, the other important thing is that those forestry holdings are actually a business premises, aren't they? Because yeah. the, the business that's taking place there is chopping down wood for selling. So that's that right. becomes a business activity. That's right, yeah. The, the Tasmanian law specifically provided that business premises includes places in the Tasmanian forests where forestry is occurring. But one of the one of the issues, just briefly in this case, was was the though the imprecision of these terms of what constituted business constituted business premises. So I think the police conceded that Brown, in fact, wasn't on business premises, as it turned out, and, and I think it was a bit more unclear as to whether Hoyt was or not. And I think that was an important sort of factor in this case, where a, a place where you're doing forestry work doesn't look like a factory does, for example. It doesn't, but it's still it's still you know activities that are for business purposes. They're not just chopping down trees like for you know fun. It's actually to make a profit. So it's part of a business, you know. But I think the activity, the, the, the premises effectively move, as I was saying. Yeah, you move along. Factory. Well, the vagueness mattered, but I think it's quite important to un understand why the majority thought the vagueness mattered because this would sort of be relevant um, say if other people are interested in whether other anti-protest laws in other states or territories might be valid or invalid mm. so so there's no general objection to um, vague or very broadly drawn laws in our system of law but the concern here was that the vagueness of or the, the breadth, really, perhaps, rather than the vagueness, although the court calls it vagueness, but I think they mean breadth. The breadth mm. of the concept of business premises and business access area, so places where work's happening and then roads to get to them, was so broad that when the police used their powers, which were activated by pe people's presence in these areas, protesters' presence in these areas, um, that was apt to stifle protest even when the protest wasn't unlawful under the Act. So you mean you didn't have to be standing in front of a bulldozer well, no, or you didn't have to be blocking 
you know, the chainsaws well, to no, still be more, interfering it's, with no, the no, it's, it's, no, it's more that um, the breadth meant that when the police came to enforce it, the police were likely to over-enforce. Because they wasn't because too because, many margins to what the Yeah, because it's too is. hard in practical terms for the police to know what the zone is that they're policing. Mm. And that so that threat of over-enforcement in the view of the majority is what actually generated a constitutional problem, which means if you have other laws which are broadly drawn, but they don't generate that risk of over-enforcement, I mean, suppose it was all of the forest full stop, and then you can kind of tell when you sort of uh, come off the road past a sign that says you're now in the National Park, mm. the fact that it's very broad wouldn't necessarily be a problem because it mightn't generate that. I mean, there might be that other doubt. problems, but this the issue here was that the vagueness produced over-enforcement. Yeah, and I think in the joint judgment that three three of the justices, Keithville, Bell and Keane, uh, sort of talked about this mm. in saying that the, the problem is that the police actually move you on and therefore stop the protest, therefore stop your political communication. Yes. And then, um, you know, you can't go straight to the court and get a judgment that that was an error mm. before the kind of protest action is finished so effectively mm. it's, it's quite a, a, a serious burden on on the communication like it, it ends it and there's not really a way to recreate it in yes. the moment so stepping back then from um, from the, the from the facts there um, when the court's looking at this um, or looking at any kind of situation where you're restricting um, uh, political communication what's the framework they're using to decide whether or not it's it's a valid restriction or not, or yeah. if there is a restriction. Yeah, well, so the the framework is contested. Roughly speaking, the first question is, does the law burden political communication and thereby burden people choosing the members of parliament? So it can be like burden the political process that the constitution provides for. And this law did that. And... In most of the cases where laws are challenged, the burden is there. That's most often because the challenges are people who have experienced the burden. So the burden is often... You mean they've been prosecuted they've been, law for, yeah, for their protest? That's activities. right, they've been charged for a protest or for sending political material through the mail or whatever it might mm. be. And so, so often the, the burden is almost evident yep. in the circumstances that have brought the, the matter mm. before the court. And can I just tell you there, this word burden is a word that the High Court uses. Yes. Uh, kind of like restrict. Yeah, so... It's like an impact. But not all laws which burden communication in, in this technical sense uh, will be unconstitutional because they might... Um, themselves serve constitutionally permitted purposes. So, so what you're saying is there's a balance off between laws that impact on my free political communication and laws that are designed to actually achieve some other purpose. Mm. It's not just stopping me from communicating on those issues, yeah. like something about public safety or public health issues. Well, well, what can... Yeah, so certainly there's balancing. Yeah. And what can be balanced against what is the heart of this debate and has been the heart of this debate among the judges and among constitutional scholars for 20 years or more now. So for us, we, we call this the longy test and we say that there's two stages to it or there's two parts to it. The first yeah. is to ascertain what was the burden or the impact. Yep. And here there was. 
And the second is to balance that off against the other yep. competing objectives, yep. which is a little bit more technical and kind of, you know, nerdy for us. Yeah. And, and that's s- kind of changing over time, that second part. Well, yeah, well, I would say has never really generated conclusive agreement. So it often generates agreement when it's easy, but this is a case where it's hard. So an example where it's easy was the pre the previous case in this area of law to this one, a case called McCloy, which was about political donations by New South Wales property developers. And there was a New South Wales law that banned or limited those. And that law was held to be a burden because if property developers can't give money, then advertisements don't get made and don't get broadcast. And so that's a burden on political communication. But the uh, the members of the court, with Justice Nettle as an exception for reasons we don't probably need to go into now, the members of the court had no trouble saying that that burden was constitutional because it served uh, a clearly logical purpose within the constitutional framework. It stopped corruption and it let other people have their say instead of being crowded out by property developer donations. And there were ICAC reports, for example, so Corruption Commission reports, from the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption, which showed that property developer money was having a pernicious effect on the the political process in New South Wales. In the McCloy case, because the trade-off was within politics, but here the trade-off is between politics and business. Okay, so within the McCloy case, we were trading off your right to political communication as the developer with your overbearing kind of power that you had on stopping other people have, you know, more of a voice or access to the various, you know, mediums. That's right. And and did you know how many paragraphs the the leading judgment gave to the balancing in that case? No, tell me. One. They said it is obviously balanced. So it is so. Because they (laughs) they did it within, because they could say there's no objection to reducing one loud person's voice to let other people participate. So it's that kind was of self-evident. It's self-evident. It's self-evident within the constitutional <clears throat> framework of sort of um, popular, de- popular democracy. But what you're saying but is this the problem one, is that the thing that seems self-evident in a politi- political yeah. communication versus other people's political yeah. communication case, that's okay. Not so easy to do when you're balancing off someone's yeah. business, you know, right to carry out their yeah. business versus yeah. someone else's right that's to right. express their protest. Because where's so if we think about the right to carry out your business, so. Where's that found? Well, is there a constitutional right to well, carry out your business? Well, is there? So we know that Section 92 of our Constitution says there shall be free trade between the states. Mm. So we know that a constitutional value for our system is enterprise. Mm. And we know that Section 5131 stops the government taking, stops the Commonwealth government taking your property without just compensation. So we know the Constitution protects some property rights. Patrick, so there's you've things just we can. constructed an implied freedom for business activity. Is well, that where we're is, going? Well, if one looks around for ways to ground this decision, that's where you can start to look. But I don't know if it works. And <laughs> someone, I don't know, I don't know if any of the judges think it's sensible. Somebody's going to give it a try. Okay, so that's, that's very, that is very wheezy. Um, but let's just pull back a little then so yes. then, and identify the problem here, which is that we have five judgments. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean for the legacy of this case? So, like, has anything been said well, or beyond the fact that um, certain provisions, and th- this is another issue, certain provisions 
of this Tasmanian law have been well, invalidated in relation to forestry activity, but not more generally than yeah, that. Yeah, so the thing is, this is a really interesting case, is that what's the ratio of this case? So is ra- the ratio, sorry, ratio. Define ratio. What's the, reason, what's the unified reasons for the judge's decision that you could actually say across these judgments is the core reasoning? Patrick snorts. Sorry? Patrick snorts. Patrick snorts. He's snorting, but <laughs> no, so I'm saying, yeah. you know, if you were setting this for a law student, you'd be saying to them, what is the actual principle that this case stands for? You'd imagine here, state government in another state drafting anti-protest law won't be looking at that from the point of view of broad principle and can they draft their law to be consistent with broad principle. I think they'll be looking at the fiddly details of the Tasmanian law, mm-hmm. looking to see yeah. what bits of what bits of those fiddly details irritate the judges and draft to avoid that. So that kind so of thing is... Patchwork drafting and patchwork litigation you, you would be my prediction. clear boundaries about what's the inside the business area and outside the business Particularly area, Particularly for right? policing purposes, yeah, that's right. so saying, you know, where the red sign is, you're, you're in and if you're before the red sign, you're out. That kind of thing means a police officer can say, you're behind the line, you're interfering with the business mm. you know, but, purposes, right? But we can think straight away of cases that are going to come up. So we think of the Max Brenner protests mm. that were held to be lawful in Victoria, uh, was reasoned under the Victorian Charter, but it could equally have been reasoned under this principle mm. because... Um, the legal framework for those protests is actually quite complicated, mm. it's a, but it was a type of trespass to public land mm. that people that um, was being enforced, and because of the way trespass to public land works, in, it was held that um, the protests were permissible because they weren't sort of creating the impermissible threats that trigger trespass to public land. And a similar now, one would be the um, anti-abortion protests. Exactly right. That you know, exactly fixed right. meter away yeah. from, and the again, clinic, and that, right? so and that's, that's a type there's of there's a bright line. Trespass on pu- but that's a type of trespass on public land yeah. offence. So, in light of this, I think all our understanding of whether those sorts of protests are lawful or not, or whether those sort of access zone limits mm. are lawful or not, I think it's sort of up for grabs, because if you think about the legi- we mentioned before legitimate purposes, the purpose here was protecting the business premises from um, disruption and damage and a blocking of access by protesters. And it was permissible to target protesters in particular because they're the people who in Tasmania historically have been blocking mm. access and doing the damage. Mm. And and it's okay to... It, Parliament is allowed to hone in on the, the reality of the situation. Mm. But um, if you think about the access zone laws for abortion clinics... Um, are those people protesters? Are they? They're not disturbing economic production. I mean, a health clinic is, in a sense, a site of economic production. Mm. Um, so, so does so do these, so do these, does the does the permissible purpose here cover those cases? Well, those or not? cases I'd say are a bit different because what they're doing is interfering with someone else's right to access health services. Yeah. Right, so, so that's that's my right to protest versus your right to access health services, or maybe it would be and so the that's way around. Right. But yeah. you know, that's right versus that's right. an international human rights law. The sort of framing you're using there, yeah. and, and, and if you, fr- you would say that that's you know, well, if you frame it, if you frame it that way, that invites the proportionality analysis. <laughs> so bring them all in like a melange and resolve and it, sort it out in the mo- yeah. But given we. Again, our High Court has said we can't work like that. And yet, what have they given us here to help us frame it in terms of the sort of more fixed and stable 
root and principles that our that our system fa- our Australian system favours. So, it's so I, I think, think it's a bit of a shambles. I think what's happening is we're going to see a series of further cases unfolding as different people in different states challenge different versions because there are a, lo- a lot of different Absolutely. versions of laws that constrain protest. Um, some are directly anti-protest laws and some are laws that protect a certain activity and in that, you know, they stop people from some activities. We're going to see a series of cases unfold I, now and they're all going to be citing Brown. I agree. But they're going to be citing Brown for a lot of different things. That's right. And I think the outcomes will be fairly hard to call. Um, isn't this, though, Patrick, first of all, kind of the way that our High Court acts, stepping back from, from just more generally... And our court system generally, you know, they try to decide cases in a narrow fashion and that part of this, is this part of what we might look back on in 20 years as a natural evolution to a point where we've got a clear principle on on um, political communication? So, yes and, yes and no, because a constitutional court like the High Court can be thought also to have a duty not just to resolve litigation before it, but to resolve that litigation in a way that makes the boundaries of the Constitution clearer rather than foggier. (laughs) I can't believe you just said that. I think in this area of law, I'm going to go back to what I said before, I think it's the, the challenge this area of law poses for reconciling Australia's traditional constitutional method with what this area of law is trying to do, which is to protect speech whilst recognise that not every burden on speech is impermissible, but without the methodological resources that courts in other countries use, which is to pull back from text to the proportionality reconciliation or to the abstract principles the Americans use, trying to do this thing without those moves, it's not necessarily impossible, but it turns out it's, a struggle. it's really hard. So the High Court has no, set itself so. this but really also, big challenge. I mean, the, me- the method of the European Court, but also, I mean, is it part of the problem that we're talking about a right not free from the, con- the context of a set of other rights? I don't think that's part, necessarily part of the problem because when... Um, so Victoria has a, a Charter of Rights which mm. does try to frame rights within the context of other rights, but when the High Court had occasion to look at how adjudication under the Victorian Charter should work, it, in effect, rejected the European approach on grounds that asking Australian judges to do that is asking them to do something which is too close to um, politicians' jobs and not judge-like enough. So I think it's not... So I think even if we had, say, a Bill of Rights in Australia, the, it goes back... The, the methodological orthodoxy or legalism, it's it's very deep, very right. deep in Australian we judicial need, if methods. If we're going to go that way, we need a bit of a change of approach then. So, yeah, so I think... Um, I think for this area of law, I think some what's needed is somehow a way of solving it within solving within it within our, our method, method which which I think some other areas of law have started to do that after some shaky beginnings but this one it's it's still going and I have to confess after the, the McCloy decision I had thought Justice Gordon offered some hope but here with the in my view slight lack of clarity around where the right to carry on a business comes from I'm not sure 
that hope's going to be fulfilled. Work in progress. It's hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so to come, to bring this back to the Tasmanian law, um, so to clarify again, this law was struck down, or, or provisions of it were struck down as far as they relate to the forestry industry in Tasmania. So where do we go, where, where do things go next in Tasmania? Well, always a bit tricky to predict, but if I was... <laughs> go ahead. But if I was a policy <laughs> officer job. in the Tasmanian Premier's Department, I'll be getting ready, maybe I've already been briefed, to rewrite these laws, getting rid of the offensive bits, so tighten up the constraints around police discretion, make it therefore reduce the ten- that tendency to over-enforcement, which was key to the to the majority determination of invalidity. Um, so, again, there was worries that... So one part of it said that if you got moved on, you couldn't come back for four days, and mm. there were some concerns that that four days was rather arbitrary. So you'd look at um, tightening up the four days, maybe instead um, such time as is reasonable in the view of the police officer who gives you the move-on order. <laughs> right? So much more clear. Right? So, um, but then that judgment of reasonableness will be interpreted as conditioned to the constitutional background. Mm. So, um, but I think, that, I mean, assuming the Tasmanian government remains committed to the policy, mm. I think you'd be looking at redrafting. I mean, nothing in this case says you can't stop protesters protesting. Mm. And I think we're going to see a number of challenges to other laws around the states and territories now yep. because um, protesters or advocates or activists are going to say, well, now I've got something to, to lean on for yep. my, my challenge. A- as to how they turn out and, and the specifics of those laws with mm-hmm. those fact situations, that's going to have to unfold. Absolutely. All right. Um, to finish off, there's a couple of things you might want to read. Um, one of our colleagues, Caroline Henkels, has written a blog post on the Caston Centre site, castoncentre.com, um, which gives a really good summary. She has jetted off overseas and so is not with us today. Tut, tut. And then there's another blog post by um, Martin Clark of the University of Melbourne on their website. Opinions uh, on High, which is full of constitutional law. Yeah. All right. Um, That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others find it and also share it through your networks. Today's podcast was edited by Theo. See you next time. Bye-bye.